This is the extraordinary, barely believable story of a criminal genius who single-handedly gave Portugal its worst shock since the great earthquake of 1755 and who, albeit indirectly, helped usher in the long Salazar dictatorship. And this is the story of a printer who printed foolishly and made the internationally renowned family-owned firm of which he was chairman the loser in what at the time was the longest and most costly court case in British legal history. This is the story of an unique crime that can never be repeated. I first heard it some 50 years ago from a descendant of that unfortunate printing family, actually from the distinguished scientist John Waterloo, whose junior research fellow I was. He told me of the remarkable events that I am about to relate during the rather unlikely circumstance of a nighttime ascent of the Blue Mountain in Jamaica. Recently, I discovered a detailed account in The Man Who Stole Portugal, a book written by an American author, Murray Tay Bloom, and published in 1966, coincidentally the very year of that nighttime climb. My story is largely based on what I learnt from Bloom's book and I am indebted to Bloom for his extensive researches. Chapter 1. A Criminal Mastermind Our story begins in a prison cell in Oporto in the summer of 1924. To be precise, in the fertile imagination of the cell's occupant, one Alves Reis, whose portrait fronts this podcast. Reis is now 28 years old. He is an unlikely prisoner, being polished and personable in manner, the son of a respectable middle-class Portuguese family. A bright student at school, he should have gone to university and then entered a profession, but his family had suffered sudden financial misfortune, and he had had to register on a practical engineering course instead, which he had abandoned after a year or so in order to get married. In 1916, Portugal had joined World War I on the side of the Allies. Reis was 20 years old. Not for him life-threatening service at the front. So he wangled an engineering job in the economically troubled Portuguese colony of Angola in West Africa. Because he had yet to complete his engineering course, he had taken steps to establish his engineering credentials by forging a diploma that purported to have been awarded by the so-called Polytechnic School of Engineering of Oxford University. An early demonstration of his ability to think outside the box and of a certain disdain for the rules that govern most men's lives. When I scrutinise the face, the face on the title page of this podcast, the face that peers out at me, 
I try to discern signs of the character that this story will reveal. A man ruthless, persuasive, utterly determined in pursuit of his goals, extraordinarily imaginative, clever, a man who yearns for great wealth, a man who has a complete disregard for and is contemptuous even of the requirements of law, but never a violent man, in all outward appearances a good family man, but one who apparently boasted of casual sexual conquests, real or imagined. Instead, what I see is a face that is unremarkable, nondescript, almost vacuous, a face that would merit no more than a glance if you were sitting opposite it on the underground. Perhaps the very ordinariness of his appearance was reassuring to those unwitting accomplices whom he would soon recruit and manipulate as his dupes. Back to Angola. His diploma from Oxford University. There had never been an Oxford graduate in Angola. Had landed him a job as an engineer with the Angolan State Railway. There, his limited engineering knowledge and an entrepreneurial spirit proved enough to improvise the repair of several locomotives, which had been prematurely retired for lack of parts. This newly won credibility lent weight to his suggestion that some new locomotives be bought from the USA. When they arrived, these new machines were deemed too heavy for the bridges along the track. Reis did not dispute the calculations made by his jealous colleagues. He merely got into a locomotive with his wife and child and rode over every bridge. Promotion soon followed to the post of acting chief engineer of the Angola Railway and also to inspector of public works. But Reis soon resigned these posts to set up a trading company that was sufficiently successful to enable his return to Lisbon in 1922. Now he was a relatively wealthy man with today's equivalent of around 500,000 in the bank. Why then was he now a prisoner? Back in Lisbon, he had set about creating the image, if not the substance, of a man big in business, a successful and capable man of affairs, a man clearly destined for greater things, a man you could trust with your money. He had rented a 12-room apartment with a cook and hired a chauffeur to drive his American Nash motor car. He had acquired the Portuguese dealership for Nash. Making use of his Angolan contacts, he had set up a Portuguese-Angolan trading company. But in 1924, he was in financial difficulties. A substantial but unwise investment in the South Angolan Mining Corporation, which had failed to find any of the mineral deposits promised in its prospectus, had led to impending bankruptcy.
something had to be done. Some friends had alerted him to the affairs of Ambaka, the Royal Trans-African Railroad Company of Angola. This company, in trouble, had recently received a loan of 2.5 million escudos from the Portuguese government. In today's money, according to the Bank of England's inflation calculator, that would be around £1 million sterling today. Wonder of wonders, this sum had not yet been spent. Here was a way out of his troubles. What if he were to become a majority shareholder and be elected chairman of the company? He could gain access to what he termed all that stagnant capital. But how does a bankrupt buy a large number of shares? Well, the operations of the Nash car dealership had required that a checking account be opened with the National City Bank in New York. The journey time for a check to reach New York by sea and then be returned was around two weeks. So Reis had issued a cheque for around $1 million in today's money, buying enough shares to give him control of the company, knowing full well that his cheque would bounce. When the cheque had been returned, Reis had merely to say that a clerical error had occurred. The cheque should be represented. In this way, Reis had obtained nearly a month of free, unsecured credit, time enough to direct sufficient of the so-called stagnant capital into his personal account and thus satisfy his creditors. He said later, If I were to pay heed to my scruples, I should inevitably fail. In the materialistic world to which I belong, there are neither honest men nor rogues, there are only victors and vanquished. When Reis's fellow directors at Ambaka realised what he had done, they reported him to the authorities in Oporto. And here he was, in an Oporto prison cell, pending trial. Solitude allows time to think, to ponder, to dream. Reis's thoughts circulated, as always, around the topic of money and how to make it, preferably large amounts of it, quickly. What is money, he mused? For the most part, it's just paper. Forgers have taken this route, of course, but they are always found out. They could never produce the perfect banknote there was always a tiny flaw that gave them away. So who is it who gets to produce the real thing? The Bank of Portugal, amongst others. On whose instruction does the bank print? It's common knowledge that ever since Portugal left the gold standard in 1891, the government has felt free to have the Bank of Portugal print money as the need arises. Well, Reis thought, why don't I ask the bank to print some money for little me?
Reis dispatched his office factotum, Francisco Ferreira, to bring him everything that could be found concerning the Bank of Portugal's operating procedures and financial regulations. He discovered that under a law of 1887, the Bank of Portugal retained exclusive licence from the government to issue banknotes up to twice its share capital. But in recent years, on government instruction, it had printed notes which, by 1924, exceeded its share capital by more than a 100 times. Reis discovered, according to a speech made by the former Prime Minister, Francisco Cunha Leal, the Bank of Portugal had, on occasion, had notes secretly printed. These transactions going unrecorded and the government not being informed of the number of notes thus printed. Furthermore, as Reis was astounded and excited to discover, the bank had no department specifically charged with preventing the duplication of banknote numbers. Reis made some calculations. He reckoned that a private issue of 300 million escudos for his personal use, less than 1% of Portugal's GDP, would not arouse suspicion. Let's now use the Bank of England's inflation calculator to give you a better idea of the sheer scale of Reis's ambition. This tells us that 300 million escudos in 1924 equates to around 200 million pounds sterling in 2021. I should state at this juncture that in my story, where sums of money are involved, I shall use the approximate equivalent in pounds sterling at today's values, having allowed for inflation. And now, Reis, undisturbed in his cell, hatched the most ingenious of criminal schemes. A scheme, indeed, of surpassing audacity and elegance. As he puffed his way, through his daily ration of 100 cigarettes. Suppose, just suppose, he thought, there was a public-spirited and well-meaning group of international financiers willing to make an interest-free loan of 300 million escudos to the government of Angola, generally known to be in severe financial straits. In return the consortium would have the right to print and introduce into the Angolan economy banknotes of equivalent value. Of course, such a project would have to be undertaken in conditions of utmost secrecy because the board of the Bank of Portugal, a sponsor of this project, is split on the matter. Only the governor of the Bank of Portugal and his deputy are in favour. But, being governor, he can proceed without the approval or knowledge of his fellow board members. The governor, working in secrecy through an agent, that agent being Reis, would commission the printing of 300 million escudos worth of banknotes. Perfect banknotes, not forgeries, 
Notes printed on the correct paper and properly numbered. Remember that the Bank of Portugal kept no proper records of notes already issued and had no department tasked with the detection of duplicates. For his troubles, Reis would say, the bank is prepared to pay him commission at 2%, equating to around £4 million in today's money, and quite enough, as we shall see, to attract willing business associates in an admittedly unusual but very lucrative and seemingly legal project. There were two requirements for the successful execution of this audacious scheme. First, suitable accomplices who must not know that they are involved in a criminal scheme if they are to play convincingly and with conviction the roles Reis had planned for them. Rather than accomplices, they would be useful dupes. The second requirement was the forgery of an authentic contract document. Quite by chance, Reis had already met his necessary dupes. Chapter 2. The Dupes José Bandera was the black sheep of a well-to-do Portuguese family. He was a lazy man, a man without scruple, a man with an eye always for the main chance. In 1899, aged 19, he had set out for South Africa, intent on making his fortune by whatever means necessary. There, he had slipped into a life of petty crime, attracting two spells in prison. On his release in 1912, he had made his way back to Lisbon, where his father's contacts had secured him a post with a local shipping agency. In 1914, he had been caught taking money from the firm's safe. His father had agreed to make good the monies taken, and there had been no prosecution. Leaving Portugal in disgrace, he had made for Mozambique, the Portuguese colony, where his father had a friend who had been able to find him a job with the Mozambique Railway. A year later, he had succumbed once again to temptation and raided the till. His father's friend had come to the rescue, making good the theft, and prosecution had been avoided. Back then to South Africa, where he had managed to stay on the straight and narrow until his return to Lisbon in 1921, at which his family had promptly dispatched him to The Hague, where his brother, Antonio Bandera, was the Portuguese minister for the Netherlands and would, the family had hoped, be a good influence on his wayward younger sibling. In the Netherlands, Bandera had entered the elevated social circles frequented by his brother. In his South African days, he had become a capable Dutch speaker, and this enabled him to strike up a friendship with a prominent Dutch businessman, one Karel Marang van Isselveer, whom Bandera, with the assistance of his diplomat brother, had helped bid successfully 
for a large construction project in the port of Macau, a Portuguese possession. The bid's success resulting, perhaps, from the Portuguese endorsement provided by the Bandera brothers. The contract was sold on to another Dutch company and Bandera netted, as commission, the astonishing amount of £2 million sterling at today's values. Now a rich man and emboldened by his success, he was on the lookout for another profitable venture. During one of his regular visits to Lisbon, where he was welcomed as the prodigal made good, he had got to hear of the South Angola Mining Company, run by one Alves Reis, reputedly an expert on Gangola. He became a friend and admirer of Reis. Indeed, it seems that he was enthralled to Reis. For his part, Reis would not have known of Bandera's shady past, but what he would have seen was a man self-evidently on the make, an unprincipled man who might prove useful, especially as his brother held high office in the Netherlands. In May 1924, Bandera had invited Reis to The Hague, where he had been introduced to Morang, and another businessman, a colleague of Morang, a German called Adolf Hennis. What Reis could not have known, but must have sensed, was that both Morang and Hennis had previously engaged in business dealings that had not been entirely legal. They were men not overly concerned with legal niceties. And he would have been right, because Morang had built a successful business by trading with wartime Germany, trading in products that, towards the end of the war, had been blacklisted by the Dutch authorities. Hennis had been Morang's German trading partner, working in the Netherlands for the German Purchasing Commission and a German spy. At the end of the war, Hennis, no longer employed by the German authorities, had engaged in various fraudulent business activities, latterly in a currency swindle that had netted him what would have been more than half a million pounds today. He had narrowly escaped prison in the process, having the sense to pull out of the swindle before his co-conspirators were found out and arrested. Reis's assessment... Morang and Hennis were the sort to engage in a project of borderline legality if it promised a good profit and could be undertaken without risk. As for moral qualms, they had none. These were just the kind of men his plan required. At that meeting in The Hague, Reis, Bandera, Morang and Hennis had discussed the possibility of doing some business in Angola, where, as Bandera emphasised, Reis had valuable connections. Morang and Hennis had been unimpressed by the potential offered by the South Angola Mining Company, but they had agreed informally to set up a trade shipping German beer to Angola. When Bandera and Hennis 
came back to Lisbon on July the 5th to have further business discussions, they discovered that Reis had been arrested and imprisoned in Oporto on that very day. They went to visit Reis in prison, where Reis protested his innocence. He was the victim, he explained, of a plot by jealous fellow directors. Hennis asked Reis why he did not sell all the stock that Reis held in the South Angola Mining Company and refund Ambaka. But Reis could not admit, of course, that South Angolan mining stock was worthless and he concocted some highly involved story as to why he could not. Bandera and Hennis, unimpressed and relieved at their narrow escape, returned to The Hague. After 54 days in prison, Reis was released. At trial on August the 27th, he was acquitted of the charge of embezzlement. Quite how remains a complete mystery. Reis turned his release into a victory and celebrated with his friends at a smart Oporto restaurant. He promptly bought some column space in Lisbon and Oporto newspapers to trumpet his vindication and denounce the cabal that had got him sent to prison so unjustly. Copies of these newspaper reports, seemingly objective, but actually written by Reis himself, were sent to The Hague because, by now, Reis had identified Bandera, Meringue and Hennis as his unwitting accomplices. Reis, utterly consumed and convinced by the validity of his plan, renewed his advances on his would-be dupes. At first, his overtures were ignored, but persistence was rewarded. In October 1924, Bandera, unable to resist the promise of earning a 2% commission on a £200 million loan to Angola, met Reis in Paris. Now enthused with Reis's project, he took Reis to Berlin to meet Hennis. Reis was able to convince Hennis that the Bank of Portugal had ordered secret printings of banknotes to help the government of Angola before, and that the existence of an international consortium led by the Bank of Portugal, willing to make a loan to Angola if given the right to print and circulate notes in the failing Portuguese colony, was not remarkable. He, Reis, had been appointed facilitator of the scheme because of his friendship with the governor of the bank, his particular task being to execute the operation in the strictest secrecy because only the governor and the vice-governor were in support of the scheme. Ellis had to agree that execution of such a scheme should provide no great difficulty if a formal contract were to be issued by an appropriate authority. Chapter 3. The Contract Now, 
Reis was ready to forge the all-important contract, a contract supposedly issued by the Bank of Portugal and the Angolan government that would authorise the printing of 300 million esculos worth of banknotes. The contract document itself would have to impress and deceive whichever company was chosen to do the printing. It must be weighty, carrying marks of approval by officialdom. Reis used government-issued notepaper, writing the contract in Portuguese with a parallel translation in poor French, later corrected by French-speaking Meringue. It carried the forged signatures of Rego Chavez, the High Commissioner of Angola, Daniel Rodriguez, the Minister of Finance of Angola, and Delphine Costa, a technical representative of the Angolan government, and, of course, it confirmed Alves Reis as commissioning agent. Reis took the contract to a notary, a personal friend, whom he knew would subject the document to only a cursory inspection. The notary confirmed that Reis's signature on the document was the signature of one authorised to do business in Portugal. Now the document was taken to the British, French and German consulates for further official stamps, which in their turn authenticated the official stamp and signature of the Portuguese notary. These further authorizations were in preparation for presentation to a foreign banknote printer, one who most assuredly could not be Portuguese. The forged document was carefully bound and the seal of the Portuguese coat of arms applied. The final flourish was to append two Portuguese banknotes, one for 1,000 escudos and the other for 500 escudos. These were the notes to be printed. Reis now took his impressive creation to Bandera and Meringue, who were staying in the Lisbon Hotel. Meringue read the document carefully four times and pronounced it genuine. On December the 2nd, 1924, Meringue, Hennis and the Bandera brothers, Antonio Bandera was now involved, met at the Portuguese minister's home in The Hague. They agreed that the contract Reis had shown them was probably genuine. But if it was not, only Meringue ran any sort of risk, and that tolerable. He was being pressed by Reis for quite substantial funds for secret operations in Lisbon. Reis had hinted at the need to bribe certain bank officials in order to keep the clandestine project secret. The money was actually needed, of course, by Reis to fend off creditors. The contract stated that the Angolan government was pleased to receive a loan of 300 million Portuguese escudos from an international consortium. In return, the government will allow the printing of 300 million escudos worth of banknotes for use in Angola. The notes to be overprinted with the words for use in Angola only on their arrival in the colony. It does seem remarkable that three 
savvy businessman and a senior diplomat could believe in such a scheme. Should they not have thought it an absurdity that a government would allow a private contractor to print and release the national currency? But Reis had chosen his ground well. It was well known that the Angolan economy was in the worst state of its 400-year history. It was also well known that the Portuguese government had recently authorised the printing of banknotes to ease its own current financial difficulties, undertaking the quantitative easing of modern parlance. It seems strange that they were not put off by knowledge of Reis's current financial difficulties, but doubts they might have had about Reis's probity were put to rest by Bandera, who, when in Lisbon, had been present when Reis had been engaged in friendly conversation with the Angolan High Commissioner. And, Jose pointed out, Reis had previously held high government office in Angola. If it seems strange that Morang and Hennis were not put off by Reis's emphasis on the need for extreme secrecy and what they presumed to be the need to bribe unspecified officials in the Bank of Portugal, an exercise only hinted at by race and never made explicit, they were just working on the common assumption by the Northern European that business practices in Southern Europe were endemically corrupt. In any case, who were they to care if bribery had been employed in facilitation of the contract? Well, that was just a matter for Reis alone. And because of Reis's emphatic insistence on the need for secrecy, they could not ask around, could not seek the opinion of others as to the validity of the scheme. And as we all know, gullibility and greed are bedfellows. Our businessmen were ready to believe in a venture containing no obvious risk that would make them all very, very rich. Bandera and his brother were on the make. Morang and Hennis, known only to themselves, were in financial difficulties despite their prosperous demeanour. And, as Reis had recognised at the very outset, none of his three collaborators had much regard for legal niceties. Chapter 4 Sir William Waterloo On Thursday the 4th of December 1924, Sir William Waterloo is in his office in the City of London. He is the recently appointed chairman of Water and Sons, printers of the world's banknotes. Sir William has a reputation for acquiring new business, a reputation he is keen to maintain in order to silence criticism from a divided board. A portly man of imposing manner, Sir William is known for his obduracy. An idea, once established in his mind, is hard to displace. On this fateful morning, his secretary enters to announce the arrival of a foreign businessman. He does not have an appointment, Sir William, but he has shown me a letter of introduction from the Portuguese minister in The Hague. Yes, all right, better show him in. 
The handsome, impeccably dressed Karl Morang van Isilvier is ushered in and impresses at once by his charm and confident manner. Morang shows Sir William the contract document embellished with impressive seals and notarizations. Sir William is not unduly surprised by this request to print 200,500 Escudos notes, valued today around £50 million, for delivery to a third party. He is, after all, aware of the extreme financial difficulties obtaining in Angola and is familiar with the Bank of Portugal's recent practice of printing banknotes when the Portuguese government is short of cash. Meringue now explains that the Bank of Portugal, as sponsor of this unusual project, has encouraged the consortium to approach Waterloo and Sons because the company had previously printed a range of Portuguese banknotes. If Sir William is willing to undertake the work, he must, however, do so in absolute secrecy. The link between the bank and this project must never, ever be disclosed. If the project were to become known, certain members of the bank's main board would be gravely embarrassed. There are board members who are strongly opposed to the printing of money in this way, but the chairman of the bank has exercised force majeure and secretly overridden them. So, in the interest of maintaining the strictest secrecy, any communication between Waterloo and Sons and the bank must only be through him, Meringue, as intermediary. Sir William has noticed that the specimen notes attached to the contract document have not been printed by Waterloo's, but are from a batch printed by the American competitor that currently holds the rights to print Portuguese banknotes. This was new business to be seized, he thought. His only requirement? A letter from the chairman of the Bank of Portugal authorising use of the bank's engraved plates. Waterloo's possessed the plates for the 500 Escudo note from work done previously for the Bank of Portugal. A lot of problems, Sir William. My assistant, Jose Bandera, whose brother is the Portuguese minister for The Hague, is shortly to travel to Lisbon, where he can pass on your request. And so it was agreed that to begin with, Waterloo's would print 200,500 Portuguese Escudos notes, 10,000 to be ready by February the 10th, and the remaining 190,000 by February the 28th. The request for a letter from the chairman of the Bank of Portugal caused only a moment's panic for our master criminal. He reassured the trusting Bandera that there would be only a small delay in obtaining this new document of authority. Time needed to contact the governor and he immediately set to work to produce a revised contract that now contained the signatures of Camacho, the governor of the Bank of Portugal, and of 
Mota Gomez, the vice-governor. The signatures were added by the simple expedient of using a pantograph to trace the two signatures from a Portuguese banknote. On December the 17th, 1924, Carl Morang reappeared in Sir William's office with a contract that had been revised rather than with the letter of authorisation that Sir William had requested. The revised contract more heavily embellished than before with additional seals and notarizations, had the all-important signatures of the Governor of the Bank of Portugal and his deputy. The contract was inspected by Waterloo's legal adviser, who pronounced it sound, whilst noting minor discrepancies in content and format, which were not, he thought, matters of any consequence. Said Morang, You will recall, Sir William, the extreme secrecy under which we must conduct this matter. This means that your usual method of transporting newly printed banknotes to Portugal cannot be used, being almost certain to expose our clandestine project to public view. The consortium, therefore, has arranged an alternative mode of delivery. I will take it upon myself personally to carry the notes to The Hague, where they can be added to the Portuguese diplomatic bag for onward transmission to Lisbon. I trust that you find this arrangement satisfactory. And then an extraordinary request. By the way, Sir William, it would be an enormous help to me if the suitcases containing the notes could be deposited in the left luggage office at Liverpool Street Station. I can pick them up from there on my way to catch the boat train. Yes, of course, my dear sir, replied Sir William. Had his senses entirely deserted him? The notes were indeed to find their way to Lisbon in the diplomatic bag, accompanied by Jose Bandera, apparently under the instruction of his brother, the Portuguese minister to the Netherlands, who was by now a willing collaborator in the secret enterprise. Being in the diplomatic bag, the suitcases were immune from the inspection of the various border officials encountered in their journey south. Chapter 5. Riding High. On February the 11th, 1925, Morang arrived once again at Waterloo's to take delivery of the first batch of notes, 15,000 in a leather suitcase and 5,000 in a stout parcel tied with wire the two weighing around a hundred pounds. They were safely delivered into Reis's hands three days later. Reis now had a problem. How to turn the notes into reputable money, banknotes legally issued and money that could sit discreetly in the accounts Reis had established in some dozen banks in and around Lisbon. His first tactic 
was to recruit a few black market foreign currency men, giving them 1,000 notes each and promising a 2% commission on however much they could get exchanged into hard currencies, dollars or pounds. We need to consider the 500 Esculos note for a moment. Today, a 500 Escudo note would have the buying power of more than £200. It's hard for us to imagine a situation in which £200 notes could be tendered to a retailer, say, without attracting comment, concern even. In 1925, a 500 Escudo note would be the same as a £5 note in England at that time, a note that was not especially out of the ordinary when proffered as common tender. So it seems that a man in possession of a wad of 500 Escudo notes would not attract suspicion. This just points up the difficulty in thinking about the buying power and the sense of real value when allowing for the natural inflation that occurs over a century. The currency men experienced no difficulties in executing their task and netted Reis around what would be £1 million today. On March the 1st, Meringue and Bandera brought a second batch of 30,000 notes in two suitcases. More batches followed. By the end of May, there were 70,000 notes in circulation. That would be around £18 million sterling today. All were exchanged as quickly as possible into pounds, dollars and francs. Reis must presumably have started to pay his accomplices their commission by bank transfer. Did his accomplices know at this stage that Reis was spending the new notes in Portugal and not in Angola? If not now, they must soon have done so. But the new notes did now begin to arouse suspicion. There were just so many. Indeed, some retailers would not accept any 500 Escudo note. Notes were regularly presented to the Bank of Portugal for inspection. As you would expect, these notes never failed to pass scrutiny. But Reis began to worry and pondered alternative strategies for turning fake into real. His solution was breathtakingly bold. Why not, why not create his own bank? Then the worrying notes could be credited directly to accounts held at that bank, no longer attracting attention. At the end of April 1925, Reis convened a meeting with the three accomplices at Claridge's in Paris. He outlined his master plan, explaining that the Bank of Portugal had now suggested the creation of a new bank as being the best way to avoid the suspicion recently aroused. And, he went on, our new bank will have certain goals. Through it, of course, we shall be able to dispose of the rest of the banknotes we have from the first printing and any subsequent ones. The new bank will be our instrument for investing in real estate in Portugal and for acquiring control of certain Angola corporations. The profits should be considerable.
and much of that will be set aside for our ultimate goal. The ultimate goal, the three looked at one another. Why? The purchase of a majority shareholding in the Bank of Portugal itself. The three unwitting accomplices were incredulous. What possible point could there be to so extraordinary a venture? Reis explained, Yes, uh, the time has come for us to show our appreciation to our friends and colleagues at the bank, Governor Camacho and Vice-Governor Gomez, by giving substantial assistance in their secret battle against the backward directors at the bank. When we have a majority of the bank's stock, we will be able to override the captious critics, the reactionary dead hands of the past. The quiet purchasing of available Bank of Portugal stock will be the task of our good Jose. The reason for this extraordinary and outrageously audacious plan was this. In his earlier careful study of the Bank of Portugal's bylaws, Reis had discovered that it was only the bank that could initiate proceedings against counterfeiters of its banknotes. It followed, therefore, that as a majority shareholder, Reis would be able to counter any such action by a subordinate employee. He imagined a future in which there would be no limit to the printing of just as many 500 Escudo notes as needs dictated. Why, uh, as they listened to this new proposition, had not the two businessmen at least begun to suspect that they were now involved in a frankly criminal enterprise? Reis had been skilful in nudging them along a path in which critical judgment was increasingly suspended. They must already have accepted Reis's explanation that it was the Bank of Portugal in a change of strategy that had approved the spending of the freshly minted notes in Portugal itself. But a new bank, perhaps not a big step, if you allow for that well-known human failing, a willingness to ignore all information that challenges a cherished belief. They must have assumed that the original loan had actually been made to Angola and they would have read of another such to Angola recently made by the Portuguese government, widely reported in the press. And Reis had been making large investments in Angolan stocks and property. During the next few weeks, Reis acquired impressive premises for the new bank. He persuaded a well-connected and personable retired naval officer whose daughter was married to the son of the inspector of the banking council, the body that would have to give authority to the new bank, to be chairman of the fiscal council of the new bank. Its shareholders were to include a former Minister of Agriculture.
Race's various manoeuvres were persuasive, and on June the 27th, 1925, the Portuguese Banking Council authorised the new Bank of Angola and Metropole. The money kept on rolling in. More notes had been printed. In July, Reis had forged a new contract authorising the printing of a further 380,500 Escudo notes, close to £100 million in today's money. The accomplices were now wealthy men and their critical faculties fully blunted, as Reis had known they would be. Jose Bandera spent extravagantly, as did Reis, who bought a grand property in Lisbon and various properties for his family and close friends in Lisbon and in the countryside, as well as the latest and best motor cars. There were extravagant purchases of jewellery for his wife, and around £10 million, today's values, was sitting in various bank accounts in England, France and Switzerland. The plan to gain control of the Bank of Portugal continued, with José Bandera tracking down and buying shares wherever he could, at ever-increasing prices because word of the increased demand soon spread. To gain control of the bank, Reis reckoned some 45,000 shares out of a total share issue of 97,000 would be needed. By October, 7,100 shares had been purchased. Tracking down willing sellers became increasingly difficult and the project was put temporarily on hold, not actually to be pursued further, as it turned out. The years 1925 and 1926 are remembered as a boom time for Portugal. There were more jobs, new buildings were going up, department stores were selling more than ever before. The escudo rose against the pound. In some newspapers, Reis was heralded as the economic saviour of poor, depressed Portugal. He was fated as man of the hour. At a press conference in September 1925, Reis announced an impending visit to Angola. With him would go a team of experts to study how the ailing Angolan economy might best be helped through the good offices of the Bank of Angola and Metropole. Reis had actually retained a strong emotional attachment to Angola ever since his time there as a young man. The most beautiful country in the world, he would often say. He seems to have had a strong and really rather honourable desire to bring succour to that distressed economy. Admittedly, given the source of the large investments that were already flowing into Angola, one could hardly call Reis's actions philanthropic, the realisation of an idealistic vision. But Reis would certainly have seen his actions in moral terms, as enlightened self-interest, perhaps. Was he a modern Robin Hood? 
with the remarkable difference, of course, that he had not actually stolen from anyone, not even from the rich. After all, he had only done what governments do when in financial difficulties, pocketing, it cannot be denied, a more than generous commission. Reis always maintained that where individuals had accumulated great wealth, they had not done so by observance of the rules. At any rate, as the money rolled in, there were further deliveries from London. Very large sums were invested in Angola. A generous loan to a palm oil company, help for a mining company in building a rail link to Luanda, the main port for export, purchase of a controlling interest in an Angolan newspaper, and many other loans and purchases besides. So when Reis arrived in Angola, accompanied by Adolf Hennis as his close business associate in early October 1925, he was greeted as a hero. There were grand receptions wherever he went. His was a triumphal progress. The High Commissioner of Angola, Rigo Chavez, hailed Reis as the saviour of Angola. In the words of a local paper, at last Portugal has found its own Cecil Rhodes. Here is a man to give substance to our old, old dream. But back in Lisbon, the storm clouds were gathering. Chapter 6. It all comes tumbling down. On November the 22nd, 1925, Reis and his party embarked on the SS Adolf Verman to return to Portugal. But they returned not to more acclaim, but to public disgrace and humiliation, because the House of Cards was about to collapse. Reis with his aggressive purchase of large areas of the most fertile land in Angola, had threatened the interests of Alfredo da Silva, Angola's leading vegetable oils magnate. Da Silva was friendly with the owner of Oseculo, a Portuguese scandal-seeking red top. He encouraged Pereira da Rosa, the owner, to launch an attack on Reis. What's going on? The Oseculo headline blared. Where does the Bank of Angola Metropole get its money? Is it from Germany? Germany had long been suspected of casting greedy eyes on the colony. Is it a coincidence that one of the bank's directors is German? Referring to Hennis. Is this a German plot to gain control of Angola? A humble teller for a money changer in Oporto, Manuel Lutero da Sousa, read these thunderous editorials and mused. And then he had it. These new 500 Escudo notes circulating in such large numbers must, just must, be forgeries. His boss was continually exchanging new 500 Escudo notes into foreign currencies, but deleted the ledger entries 
related to these transactions. A suspicious act, surely. He took his suspicions to the manager of the local branch of the Bank of Portugal and was sufficiently persuasive that the manager went straightway to Lisbon to alert two directors of the Bank of Portugal to the possibility of a forgery on a grand scale. Panic! A team of senior officials and a forgery expert was quickly assembled and on December the 4th took the night train to Oporto. The Oporto police were called and they arrested the branch manager of the local bank of Angola and Metropole and put him in prison. Batches of new 500 Escudo notes were impounded and subjected to the closest scrutiny by the forgery expert who pronounced them genuine. The embarrassment was extreme. Without warrant or evidence, they had consigned an innocent branch manager to prison and ransacked his premises. But one of the Bank of Portugal's men sat down and looked through the bundles of 500 Escudo notes once more. Lightning struck. Two notes had identical serial numbers. There had to be a forgery after all. Forgery on an unimaginably grand scale. Chapter 7 Heads Begin to Roll News of a gigantic forgery was everywhere. In emergency session, the Bank of Portugal instructed that all 500 Escudo notes, genuine or forged, were to be withdrawn and exchanged for currency of other denominations. There were long queues at the bank's branches and some civil disturbance. The papers shouted of a German plot, even of a Russian plot, to destabilise Portugal. Arrest warrants were issued for Alves Ries, Adolf Hennis, Jose Bandera and his brother, and other unwitting minor functionaries within the Reis Empire. Reis, returning from Angola, was anchored in the Bay of Cascais, awaiting a port pilot to take his ship into Lisbon. Reis's friends sent a speedboat to warn him of his impending arrest. Hennis jumped ship and tried to persuade Reis to join him in his escape, but Reis refused strangely confident that he could defeat the forces now arrayed against him. More evidence of Reis's great powers of persuasion. In his first interrogations by the chief investigating judge, Dr Pinto de Magalhes, Reis directed the finger of suspicion towards the governor, Camacho, and his deputy, Mota Gomez, claiming that he, Reis, was also a victim of a plot, only acting on instructions received from on high. These two high-ranking gentlemen, Camacho and Mota Gomez, were immediately arrested and only released on the orders of the President of Portugal. It seems that Dr Pinto de Magalhães 
was so convinced of Reyes's relative innocence that he allowed him special comforts in prison. Sir William Waterlow came to Portugal with a substantial placatory offer in today's money of around half a million in an attempt to head off an almost inevitable lawsuit. His offer was not accepted. The offer was raised to one million and was still refused as final settlement of the difficulties that had arisen between the Bank of Portugal and Waterloo's. The investigating judge held to his theory of high-level conspiracy involving officers of the Bank of Portugal, a theory that was widely held in the general population. Reis, the author of the current Portuguese boom, was still something of a hero to many. It was only when a new judge, who took an altogether more aggressive line with Reis, was appointed that the truth was revealed. Chapter 8. The Reckoning The conspirators did not come to trial until May 1930, having been held in detention for four years. Reis impressed the court by his dignity and articulacy in a five-hour declaration. He was admired particularly for his efforts to shoulder all blame, exculpating the other defendants. But the court found not only Reis, but Hennis in his absence, and the two Bandera brothers guilty. Reis and Jose Bandera were sentenced to a further eight years in prison, followed by 12 years of exile in one of the Portuguese colonies, which they chose to spend in prison rather than in Angola or Mozambique. Three years were to be spent in solitary confinement. They were both released in 1945. In prison, Reis underwent conversion to an obscure Protestant sect to which, using his considerable persuasive powers, he converted a number of other prisoners. He died ten years later as a lay preacher and as an unsuccessful small businessman in financial straits. Morang was arrested in The Hague at the request of the Portuguese authorities. He was held in prison until his trial 12 months later, when he was found guilty merely of receiving stolen goods. The court accepted his defence that he had been an innocent dupe. The sentence of one year had already been served and he was released immediately. Still a wealthy man, the bulk of his great riches had been hidden from the authorities. He went to France. He was able to set up an increasingly successful electrical supplies business and he retired to Cannes, a respected and wealthy businessman, dying there in 1960. Hennis fared less well. On leaving ship, he escaped to Germany, where he lived, using his earlier true identity. Hennis was an assumed name. Like Morang, his various bank accounts were not discovered by the authorities, and he was a wealthy man. But within a few years, a number of ill-advised business ventures reduced him to relative poverty. In 1935, 
the Portuguese authorities had discovered his whereabouts. He had been betrayed by a former girlfriend who was seeking a reward. The Portuguese demanded his expedition, but Hennes was protected by newly empowered Nazi officials who were his friends, and the German court decided there was no case for Hennes to answer. He died in 1936 in suspicious circumstances. He may have been murdered by a man who owed him money. Jose Bandera had revealed all his various bank accounts when he was arrested and left prison in a relatively impoverished state. He was helped by handouts from his family and from his Dutch film star girlfriend who sent him regular small donations. He managed to buy in to part ownership of a nightclub, the primary purpose of which was to facilitate pickups by prostitutes. But this did not do well and he sold his share. He struggled along in cheap lodgings with various girlfriends until he died in 1960 in hospital after a bad fall. Antonio Bandera had been sentenced to six years in prison. Five had already been served by the time of his trial and ten years in exile. He died in 1936 in Madeira, his chosen place of exile. For a year or so, Sir William Waterlow was involved in further negotiations with the Bank of Portugal. The Waterlow's board had authorised that he make what the board considered a generous final offer of one and a half million. That's in today's values. But the Bank of Portugal had continued to insist on full recompense for its supposed hurts to the tune of 55 million at today's values. How had it arrived at this particular sum? by the simple expedient of counting the value of the 500 Isula notes that had been returned and that had to be replaced with notes of other denominations. Sir William's position at Waterloo's was greatly weakened and his enemy on the board, Edgar Waterloo, secured his complete removal from the company in November 1928. There was some recompense, perhaps, in that in the following year he became Lord Mayor of London. The Bank of Portugal pursued their claim against Waterloo's for 55 million through the British courts. The case was first heard in November 1930 and judgment made against Waterloo's to the tune of 20 million at today's values. Waterloo's appealed, and in February 1931, damages were reduced to 12 million. Waterloo's were impressed by the minority opinion expressed at the Court of Appeal to the effect that damages should only be the cost of reprinting the forged notes, a trivial sum. Waterloo's decided, therefore, to take the case to the highest court in the land, the House of Lords. The case was decided by five law lords in April 1932. A majority of three judges 
decided in favour of the Bank of Portugal and awarded the bank 26 million plus costs, which amounted to some 4 million. The two dissenting judges believe that only the cost of reprinting the returned notes should be allowed. Sir William Waterlow never learnt of the final outcome because on July the 6th, 1931, he died of peritonitis. He was 60 years old. The case was much discussed in the following years. A feeling emerged that the law lords had made a misjudgment because the Bank of Portugal had not actually suffered any material loss. Their only real loss was loss of face and credibility. Had Sir Cecil Kinch, the barrister acting for Waterloo's in the first two trials, been able to represent Waterloo's in the final appeal, he would have used this argument. He wrote later that he was confident that he would have won the case for Waterloo's. But before the final appeal could be heard, Sir Cecil was appointed Foreign Secretary. He also wrote, by the way, that Sir William Waterloo was a pompous fool. Chapter 9. A few last words. The Portuguese banking scandal of 1925, as this story became known, with its exposure of incompetence in one of the most important of the nation's financial institutions, undoubtedly contributed to a general loss of credibility in government. A military coup d'etat occurred in May 1926, which was soon to be followed by the long, repressive Salazar dictatorship. But in the short term, Alves Reis's extraordinary enterprise apparently brought real benefits to the Portuguese economy. 1925 and 1926 were boom years, the boom being brought about by the injection of around £200 million sterling into the economy. It's possible that an even greater sum was injected because the number of notes returned for emplacement was likely an underestimate of those that had actually been introduced into circulation. Indeed, for the many, Alves Reis was a hero. In 1926, a novel appeared which portrayed Reis as the saviour of Portugal. It was called The Fantastic Bank, Fraud or Patriotic Action. It was a bestseller for months. As late as 1935, there was a popular joke going the rounds in Lisbon, told about an old friend visiting the dictator Salazar. The dictator was upset about the state of the country's economy. His friend said, It's no problem at all. I can solve it for ten escudos. How? asked Salazar. Well, we just spend it on a cab fare to the penitentiary. Take out Alves Reis and put you in his place. Reis's popularity lasted because his was a truly victimless crime. No one was robbed. No one suffered as a result of his fraud. There was no violence.
So what are we to think of this man, this man with the vacuous expression? What was he really like? He was certainly no common criminal. In his own mind, his actions were moral. Yes, he had broken the law, but so, surely, in his opinion, had most possessors of great wealth. He was no different. Admittedly, personal gain had been the main objective of his scheme, but his desire to help depressed Angola was genuine, and he did pump enormous sums into the Angolan economy through land purchase and investment in agriculture, mines and railways. He despised Sir William and blamed him for the debacle. That man should not have been so gullible. Once the game was up, he tried hard to exculpate his associates by shouldering all blame. His early years in Angola show a man of enormous energy with quite remarkable persuasive powers. His self-belief was unshakable. He was able to take on tasks when not fully required to do so, making a success of them. Difficulties were there to be overcome, and there were no difficulties he considered that could not be overcome. Would we have liked this man on the underground with the vacuous expression? Fee Carlson, the glamorous Dutch film star and Jose Bandera's lover, took an immediate dislike to him. I suspect that we would have done so as well, but we certainly would have found his conversation interesting. There was a lot to talk about.